This is the Detection at Scale podcast, a new show designed to help security practitioners succeed at managing and responding to threats at a modern cloud scale. As the volume of data increases and the attack surface expands, it's never been more important to stay ahead of the curve. Each episode will feature interviews with leading security practitioners, thought leaders, and company founders who are building the next generation of security tools. I'm your host, Jack Naglieri, founder and CEO of Panther Labs. Now let's get into today's show. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Detection at Scale. My name is Jack Naglieri. And today I'm here with Mike Saxton, who is the tech director of Booz Allen's Defensive Cyber Ops. With more than 20 years of experience, Mike's led and worked on multiple government programs focused on improving SecOps, IR, and forensics. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jack. Appreciate it. So I did this uh, 12K in San Francisco yesterday. It was like my first long distance run. And I know it's like seven and a half miles is not super long, but I saw that you're an ultra marathon runner. So have you done that recently? Like, tell us a little bit about that before we talk about security stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, they're tied really closely together. I'm a big proponent of kind of separating yourself from the security world when you work in it. And ultra running became that way to get long breaks of time to myself. So longest run I had was 32 miles just about at the beginning of COVID. I've run some half marathons since then. I ran a marathon since then. But as of late, it's been mostly, you know, five, 10 miles or so. It's an interesting comment you made about taking a break from work. And was that the thing that really sparked you to get into running? Or was it more of just a health thing? Or tell us a little bit about that. Uh, it was a little bit of both. At the time, I was running a, a really large security operations contract. It was global. We had 150 employees, 24-7 SOC work. And it was just consistent with sort of playbook updates to leadership and and the churn of a typical operations team, I just found myself needing to get away. And everything that I, uh, I set out to do kind of had me on my phone all the time, which means I never really got away. But ultra running and running long distances just had me put it in my back pocket and saw how far I could go. The health benefits were great. The break from work mentally was fantastic. And so I definitely still try to get out for a few miles a week these days. Hopefully uh, not on the East Coast all the time because it's so hot there. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I come out to California. We have the best running weather. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in California. So uh, it's funny when I uh, hear back to friends that are talking about how cold the weather is sometimes in San Francisco. And, you know, it's like, you know, 50 or something like that. And in the Midwest, it'll be, you know, four. So, oof, not for me. Yeah. (laughs) How did you actually get started in security? That's a really great question. So I started what I call my first career as a paramedic. I was always really interested in cybersecurity. You know, we kind of grew up at the advent of America Online, getting connected with chat rooms and kind of reading into all the different security facets that were out there. At the time, as mentioned, working as a paramedic, I had a lot of downtime when I was just kind of hanging around. I ended up downloading Backtrack at the time, a lot of unsecured Wi-Fi points. You know, we'd hop around and find unsecured Wi-Fi to kind of surf the internet while we were hanging out waiting for phone call or 911 calls. And then that's when Backtrack, that wasn't why Backtrack came in, but, you know, got a hold of Backtrack and started learning penetration testing and, and all those sorts of ins and outs of cybersecurity. Now, fast forward about 15 or 10 years later, sorry, just kind of got tired of the 24-7 work of being a paramedic, needed a change, started moving into government work. And that's where I've been uh, been ever since. 
backtrack really just uh, sent me down a, a road of nostalgia. Thanks for that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You're welcome. So long. Have you been keeping up with uh, some of the recent fishing things that have been happening? So there was this group called Octopus and they effectively created a bunch of fake Octa logins and they would take credentials with 2FA and then they would log in and right. do a bunch of things. Over 130 organizations were compromised with this. And basically what happened was people would get fished and then they would give up the creds. They would, they would log into Okta, pivot around, do a bunch of things. Group IB has a really good blog post on it, highly recommend it. But it just has me thinking about that transition into the cloud. And, and since you work a lot with government, the thing I was really curious about is, is government even using things like Okta? Or like, where are they in the cloud journey exactly? Yeah, so there's a couple different efforts in the cloud shift. You know, a lot of the products the government is using, they're they're getting more into the commercial space and using commercial-based products. There's been multi-factor authentication in the government forever with the common access card or PIV cards. You know, that I think that came around really about 10 years ago was the big push to get off passwords and get everybody there. As far as the SSO approach and everything similar that would be kind of Okta or a, any platform, there's the adoption of it, but there's also the bigger push right now into, you know, what's the, the zero trust model. There's been some really high directives coming out from across the Department of Defense, really focused on broader security adoption into the cloud space. One of the interesting things about the government is that, and this is kind of where we differ as a consulting service or a federal system integrator, is that the federal government, a lot of times private organizations will say, we're going to go with AWS and we're going to store all of our data in AWS. And we may kind of have a third-party cloud provider, but the federal government really has you know, all cloud providers. They have a lot of different services that rely in them for a multitude of different reasons. And so as you start to look at the government cloud security approach, it gets really interesting to think of multi-tenant, multi-cloud, multi-vendor, multi-location, right? These are geographically dispersed teams that are dealing in multi-vendor, multi-cloud environments. And that's the typical environment that we operate in. Why does the government use all the cloud providers? I mean, you said different services for different reasons, but can you give an example of why you'd want to span? Is it redundancy or something else? Typically, it has to do more with acquisition process. And it depends on which side of the government you're on, whether you're on like the .gov side or the DOD side. There's different levels of authority on which, you know, kind of higher headquarters can authorize or push down the directive to go with one provider or the other. And so what we'll run into is trying to defend, you know, cloud service A, where all the applications are, and cloud service B, where email is, cloud service C, where you might have some more customer-facing or more available to the public type information. Do you think with the government's transition to cloud, we're going to start to see the FedRAMP requirement become much more common? That's a really interesting question. I think the FedRAMP requirement will become much more common personal opinion is, can it scale? So saying, you know, that people have to get into it is one thing. Scaling it as the broader cloud adoption happens, I think is going to be a much bigger hill to climb. And I think it'll be really interesting to watch how the government needs capabilities that are available in the commercial space, but might not be available 
in the government because of FedRAMP requirements. Now, there are a lot of really great capabilities and the government's recognized this. There's things like other transactional authorities where the government is looking for some of those smaller niche companies out there that, that are doing great work with the promise of becoming FedRAMPed or becoming part of the risk framework process within you know six months or a year, given the time of the scope. So I think the government's really recognized the need to operate much quicker and using vehicles like that can help them get there. It's good to hear that the government's investing in smaller companies. Do you have an example of that? I mean, it sounds really forward-looking, very early adopter-esque, you know? Yeah, yeah. Actually, we were working with the folks over at Gray Noise, and they've been able to get into some of those award processes through some of the, the vehicles that they've been awarded. So I do think there's always this sort of overarching of the mega corporations, right, that are kind of there to do the roles of security. But I think the government is also looking to find a lot of those more niche players in the market that may be doing things differently. The big challenge in the federal government is that it's a totally different world than private sector. We're not talking about like thousands or tens of thousands of endpoints or employees. We're talking about multi-million endpoints and employees. And so the approach to security has to be a little more different, a little layered, a little bit less invested in one massive kind of capability. And the government looks at different capabilities and partners that can kind of help the government reach their goals and outcomes is, is what we've seen across some of the procurement and contracting cycles. Yeah, millions of endpoints is pretty intense. I mean, how do you even get started with that? Yeah, so we found out about seven years ago that the traditional approach to cybersecurity of pushing everything back into one consolidated location can be a little bit of a challenge, especially when you're dealing with organizations that are overseas on unreliable internet connections. And then you have just the typical indexing and ingesting and zipping and compressing and uncompressing and everything that goes on to centralize capabilities. The big push that we've seen lately, and one of the things we're doing for a large federal customer right now is really twofold. We've sent out the detection outside of a SIM. So we still use a SIM, but we think of it in a couple different perspectives. We think about what do we need to know right now what do we need to know from like an aggregated perspective? And then what do we need to bring back and store just for really long-term objectives? And we broke it up like that because we don't want to miss our root-level compromise and some of the stuff you just talked about with uh, Okta, the team that's exploiting Okta. You don't want to miss out on that while waiting for just your general syslogs that aren't malicious coming back into a centralized location. So that's the first one. The second one we focus on is we've started to work towards the things we call taking detection to the data instead of data to the detection. So we have a federated model that kind of sends sensors and detection capabilities out throughout the network. And then we use things like GitLab or GitOps principles to share our detections out to those sensors instead of trying to bring everything back where we're writing detection ones. Do you think that slightly goes against zero trust, though, if you're having to rely on like endpoint-based detection? Yeah, I think that there's obviously the give or take in cybersecurity, right? We have all these different levers that you're trying to pull. We've got a secure mechanism in place to do all this where we have the trust principles baked in to the process. But I also think that the trade-off is massively storing, you know, petabytes of data scale and trying to ingest and find those those real-world threats that are happening at any given moment that may happen much after the exploit or the breach occurs to get that information in has just been, you know, historically a, a longer than comfortable time frame. Maybe that's a good segue to talk a little bit about detectionist code. So can you give yeah. us a sense of like how these detections are created and how you 
sort of describe that application logic and things like that? Yeah, so we started with detection as code probably about, I want to say about six or seven years ago. And our, our first sort of foray into it was looking at a new way to build detection. To us, detection as code means abstracting away the vendor that you're using and writing just much more targeted detection logic into what you're looking to find. I mentioned in the federal space, right, we have a multi-vendor environment. For one client, we were supporting a multi-SIM environment. So obviously, as we all as the security practitioners are well aware, we have data models and different capabilities. And so what we were finding is writing one detection logic wouldn't work for the other user that had a different, you know, a data model or something. So we started to really look at using detection, things like Sigma uh, was where we first originally started. And then we started to get more into using Python for detection logic. Internally, we developed a library in Python called PyHAL, which was the Python hunt analytic library. And that was really the focus of that was to get towards a transportable series of threat hunting logic or detection signatures that we could take into those different environments or the multi-vendor environment and really only have to write detection code once, maybe twice to update a data model. But that was our big push into the detectionist code space. What do you think has been the biggest change in that transition from I'm doing all my logic in the sim to I'm using things like PyHAL or, or Sigma in order to express this detection logic? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges is that we still have some of the legacy issues that exist. We'll still have a different data model that exists, or we have some clients that are using a totally different data model than what you know others might be using, even though it's the same SIM platform. So one of the biggest challenges has been, how do we stay up to date with the threats and get that near real-time information across really broad environments while trying to consolidate things much easier or in a much easier fashion. The other thing is when we start to write more detectionist code and less vendor-specific stuff, we found that by just sharing it out, we were getting kind of put in a queue of the security operations teams because they all have their own stuff that they're working on. And so what we started to look towards was much more faster automation and adoption of the things that we were building. We can apply some CICD principles to do runners that convert the data models depending on where the detection's going and really automating the capability. And to put it in scale, I think I was looking back through some of my notes before we started this one month, I was looking back at our team and they look like they retired and I was reviewing some of our metrics and they had deployed almost 30,000 signatures that month. And that's because Different geographic locations, different vendors, different capabilities all existed. So we were rewriting and writing some of the same detection logic over and over again that ultimately ended up in that number. But that's a lot of signatures for a, a team to write and deploy and detection to, to write and deploy across an environment. You either have a massive team or a very overworked team. <laughs> we had a very overworked team. <laughs> that's, that's intense. That's the beauty of Python, though, is you can remove a lot of the duplication you would have done prior. So when we were starting Panther, we were thinking about shipping a bunch of different built-in detections. And what we kept finding is like the number was significantly smaller than what like other vendors were claiming. And then we were like, well, we were able to write like 10 checks into one detection <laughs> because of Python. So Python's been a huge leg up. I mean, did you see a gap in people's skill sets to adopt detection as code or was the skill set already there? Absolutely. No, we definitely saw a gap and it's, I feel like we're starting to finally 
get ahead as just a community of get ahead of the the hiring gap that exists. It's still massive, but we have a lot of training academies. We have a lot of boot camps. We have a lot of really great efforts that are trying to get more trained cybersecurity practitioners, but you can only get them so far within a certain time span or so far within a certain like dollar figure of a class, right? And I think that We've done a really good job to push out a lot of security folks that can help organizations, but definitely there was a big uptick when we started to implement detection in this code capabilities. One of the things that we found really great is in interview processes, not asking people to write Python code, but rather giving them the code themselves and asking them to update the code based on some new detection logic. It gives us some sort of aptitude level where we can kind of bank them in. Are they going to be our detection engineer? Or maybe can they come in and work in maybe a tier two? Or are we just going to really focus on countermeasures and other logic while we put them through some sort of training program to learn Python or learn this library or, you know, whatever it may be? How did you get started with writing software? By happenstance, I think kind of like uh, maybe a lot of us, uh, we were sitting you know, at a computer one day and said, hey, I think this would be really cool if this existed. And you just kind of started working it. At the time, I had some family connections. One of their kids loved fishing. And actually, as I was in school, I wrote a, uh, a Java-based program that allowed them to kind of track which fish they caught, what type of water was it, what type of bait that they used. And this was before there were like iPhone apps to do so. So it was just kind of filling a niche and and being creative and seeing what we could put together. I love how you said fishing as your example. I was like, well, that's an intense <laughs> hobby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> credentials the, the fishing with an F, not the, not the PH, I guess I should say. So That was hilarious. What types of things are you pulling from endpoints? Because there's obviously a multitude of data that you could get from an endpoint, like network, processes, file system information, What are the things that you care about at that scale? Yeah, so one of the big things we've been working through lately is focusing on an endpoint strategy across the federal government. The term host-level visibility is is thrown around. And there was an executive order that was put out a while back telling federal organizations to implement endpoint detection and response EDR capabilities down across the endpoint. And it's as, as the typical federal government is, right? It's, it's large, it's massive. It takes time to roll these things out. But as we've been working with more organizations and talking to them about threat hunting and incident response and where you are and what we kind of call our endpoint journey with the clients, right? If you have nothing or you're, you have a fully blown EDR that's tuned and configured and in enforcement mode, we help them build their endpoint sort of strategy together. One of the big things lately is, you know, really looking at system processes, obscure system resources. We've been doing a lot of work around pairing parent-child processes on the endpoint together because we found that, you know, just like writing typical detection capabilities, you need multiple logs or you need multiple sources to really tell the story. Otherwise, you kind of end up with noise. And again, as we're operating at this massively large federated data model, you know, kind of back to the point on Python, right? We may want to say from this log, tell me X plus from this log source, tell me Y and get that alert back rather than trying to do it in the sim itself. And how much usage of open source is there in government? I would imagine probably a lot because it's less commercial and easier to deploy. It's a little bit of mixed. So there's always the challenge where using and deploying some small GitHub library, right, might pose a challenge in an enterprise environment. But as I've seen more organizations and vendors in the space adopt 
the open source model with the I'm not sure what the pricing structure is called, but where you you know you can get the capability with a limited set of features and then buy into the enterprise licenses. We've seen that be fairly successful in the the federal space, and I think one of the great capabilities with it is you you almost get to test drive the capability before you buy. You can try it as a pilot use case. You can kind of test it out, see if it accomplishes the things that you need. And I kind of look at it sometimes as like buying a car, right? Sometimes I just want to go to the lot. I want to walk on. I just want to look at the vehicle. I don't really want to talk to anybody at the same time. And I think it offers that approach to some people. And then if it kind of passes, you know, the sniff test of the technical folks or the threat hunters on the other end, start the sales conversations and bring them in to understand the full scope and breadth of, of what's capable. Yeah, that makes total sense. The issue with that model on the commercial side is that sometimes like people are always kicking the tires. So it's like you have yeah. to incentivize people to like take it seriously and things like that. Exactly. And open source. Exactly. Open source is great because it's so transparent. It's community driven. But the only issue I have with it is that sometimes there's been projects that were adopted and then forgotten about that were like really helpful yeah. at some point and then they just yeah. got unfunded or whatever. And then that doesn't really push things forward, in my opinion. You're just kind of lingering in the same place and not evolving. Yeah. So it's a mixed bag. Yeah. But there's a lot of great yeah. open source security projects. Don't get me wrong. A lot of them. There are. Absolutely. There was a, you know, I'll give you a, to your point, we were really using a um, an open source case management platform for a long time. And it's called The Hive. Those folks have made the decision to change their model a little bit and focus more on SaaS type product and services base, which is awesome. And I certainly applaud them for it. But to your point, right? Like, what do you do when that company sort of goes into this new pay model or this new just completely erodes altogether and you're using their product. I see that happen kind of at a different level, but even in the non-open source space with just the consistent round of acquisitions that are happening within cybersecurity right now and new leadership coming in, new guidance coming in. Is it changing pricing models for customers and clients on the other end? And is it driving the adoption of changing products? And I think... My initial answer, and totally without any scientific proof, is it, it probably is. But I think it's a changing landscape that's going to continue to to grow and, and shift over time. Absolutely. There's this quote, it's like, the only constant is change. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I think about that all the time. Well, awesome. Mike, this was great. I really appreciate you coming on the, on the show today. I want us to leave with uh, some words of wisdom from you. So... Uh, Can you give everyone listening in just three pieces of security advice to succeed at detection and scale in the future? Yeah, I think the first thing is continue to learn. You know, you and I talked about sort of my path and and growing. We talked about Python libraries for detection. In six months, we might be using Rust, right? Or whatever it may be, right? Kind of continue to grow and learn. And then we go back to where we started was that the burnout is tremendous in our field, right? There's a lot of different capabilities and things that you can grab from other industries and bring them into security. The other one is find a niche. Security is massive, right? And now we say security and and we kind of know what we mean, but there's so many different levels from network to application to et cetera. I love nothing more than when I go on Twitter and I see just somebody who's devoted time and energy into studying like this total niche topic that's about application security or something like that. And I'll scroll through that all day long. Some of the broader like 
abstract stuff. It gets a little lost in the noise, but I love people that have devoted time and energy. And then the other one is combining them together and just, you know, really getting outside your comfort zone. That's the way we push the industry. That's the way we grow ourselves. We talk about detection as code that, you know, again, that may change over time, but continuing to push forward and and grow yourself uh, helps transform the community and ultimately makes better, more secure organizations at the end of the day. And push yourself to run ultra marathons. Maybe a 5K. We'll, we'll start with the 5K and then we can go from there. But <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Thanks so much, Mike. For anyone who wants to keep up with Mike, you can follow him on Twitter. His hilarious Twitter handles, Mikey as a service. M-I-K-E-Y as a service. And Mike, looking forward to keeping in touch with you. And uh, for those listening, we'll be back soon. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks, Jack. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Detection at Scale podcast brought to you by Panther Labs. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at www.runpanther.io forward slash podcast. And for those interested in running Panther, head to our website, runpanther.io to sign up for a free trial. You'll get a dedicated instance with the ability to analyze your security logs in real time at any scale powered by detections as code and sending into a very robust security data lake. Our goal is to make detection and response easy, scalable, and fast for you, the practitioner. Thanks. See you again next time.